Now we have already dealt with the first <coughs> subsection of the second division of the book of Malachi. This second division, as you can see, we have entitled The Despising of the Lord's Name and the Profaning of the Lord's Covenant. And we have subdivided it into three uh, blemished offerings, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, which we have already covered, and then corrupted service, chapter 2, from verses 1 to 9, and compromised lives, chapter 2, from verse 10 to 16. The first of these sections is addressed to the priests and the people, that is the section we have entitled blemished offerings, and the... Um, and the people are addressed, as it were, through the priests. The second section, corrupted service, is particularly and exclusively directed to the priests. And the third section, compromised lives, is to all. Now this evening we come to corrupted service. I'm not going to go over anything that we've said about blemished offerings. If anyone wants to hear it, um, it is already recorded, and they will be able to do so. Now, corrupted service. First of all, if you look at this section, chapter 2, from verse 1 to verse 9, you will discover that everything is centred in the covenant with Levi. Verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may hold. Now first, what was the covenant of Levi? Because it is of very great importance that we understand it in understanding what service is. It was the covenant God made with the tribe of Levi in one particular instance and also with Phineas, the Levite, in another, when they at great cost to themselves stood up for and with the Lord against sin and compromise. If you look at Exodus chapter 32 and um, Numbers 25, Exodus chapter 32, and Numbers 25, you will be able yourselves to read the story of, um, of, of the way that the tribe of Levi stood with Moses against the rest of the people. You will remember this story is about the golden calf. And when Moses came down and found all the people were warring after the golden calf, they were worshipping the golden calf, singing and dancing, and uh, the whole scene was one of utter uh, paganism, uh, Moses cried out, Let him who is on the Lord's side come unto me. And you will remember that it, it was in verse from verse 25, he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. 
And then he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword on his side, and go to and from gate to gate throughout the camp. Slay every man his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. And Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his own son and of his own brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. It's a terrible story. But out of this terrible story and devotion which had to pay the supreme price of siding with its own kith or kin, or with the Lord, service, the service of God, was born. And then again, if you look at Numbers um, and chapter 25, you will find the same kind of story at a later date, when once again the children of Israel played harlot with the daughters of Moab, and this time Phinehas, as it were, stood up for the Lord. I'm not going to, you can read the story yourself, but you will see that the Lord said, because of this, verse 12, therefore say, behold, I give to him, that is Phinehas, my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now, this was the origin of the setting aside of the tribe of Levi for the service of God and within the tribe of Levi, the setting aside of the house of Aaron, Phinehas, um, for the priesthood. You have two great streams um, in this um, symbolism of the Old Testament of service. One is Levites, the Levites, who did all the material and practical work in the temple and in the tabernacle, tabernacle temple, and the other, the priests who actually um, offered up the sacrifices and went into the holiest place of all, the high priest anyway. Now this is how um, the covenant uh, with Levi came into being. Now we shall say a bit more about that in a moment. <coughs> it was a covenant, if you look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 5, it was a covenant of three things, of life, the life of God, of peace, the peace of God, and of fear, the fear of God. Now, two of these things God gave, and one of them God expected. The two that God gave, he gave, according to this covenant he made with them, life and peace. He gave his life, and he gave his peace. He only expected one thing in return, and that was fear. Or, if you like the word better, reverence. Loving reverence. That's all. Now, there were these three things that characterized the covenant God made with Levi. Now, why? 
because you see the tribe of Levi on that day when they slew everyone, his own brother or son or kith and kin in the camp, were the preservers of a distinctive life. They were the guardians of the life of God, which was in danger of being, as it were, prostituted to something else. And they were the preservers of the peace of God, because if that sin had been allowed to go on, all peace would have gone. No one would have known any peace. But they were the preservers of God's peace. Uh, and they did it at great cost. But they were the preservers of the peace of God. And the third thing they were, they were, what shall we say, the custodians of the holiness of God. Well, how, will, will, how shall we uh, approach this difficult word, the fear of the Lord? But really, that's what they were. They were the custodians of the holiness of God. That day they stood up for the fear of the Lord. If people think that they can sin like this, if people think that they can so quickly make a golden calf like this, or go worshipping the Moabite gods, where will the reverence for the Lord be? They will treat him with contempt. They will think they can do anything with the Lord. They can get away with anything because he's benign, because he's loving, because he's merciful. They can do anything and everything and get away with it. No, you see, these, the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron, they stood for the fear and reverence of the Lord. You cannot play about with God. Now, out of this was born this covenant. And it was characterized, therefore, by these three things, life, peace, and reverence, or fear. And the priests and Levites were, from that day forward, in God's sight, to be the custodians in Israel, amongst God's people, of the life of God, of the peace of God, and of the fear of God. They were to be, as it were, the watchdog of Israel. They were to be the corporate conscience of the nation. They were to be the guardians of the truth God had deposited in his people. Now this is all, in a moment I hope you'll begin to understand what we're trying to get at. You see, all this has to lot for us in a moment when we begin to understand what service really means. You see, they were all this and they were more. They were not only the corporate conscience of the nation, of the people of God. They were not only the custodians of the life and peace and fear of God and guardians of the truth. They were also the mediators between God and men. To them was given this great ministry of intercession, representing God to the people and the people to God. Now this was, this was the covenant God made with Levi, with the tribe of Levi, and with the house of Aaron. In a word, they were to be the messenger of the Lord of hosts. 
If you look again at Malachi chapter 2, and we're keeping to Malachi, although we're, as it were, explaining it from Exodus and Numbers. Uh, yes, Exodus and Numbers. If you look at chapter 2, verse 7, you will see that we're, we're told here, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now this word, for those of you who perhaps do not know it, is most interesting because it is the angel of the Lord of hosts. For he is, the word is, is the same. It can be translated either messenger or angel. He is the angel of the Lord of hosts. It's an amazing term. We often have this word, the angel of the Lord, or the messenger of the Lord, but we very rarely have the messenger of the Lord of hosts. It's a, it's a, a striking title. Now, this goes right to the root of the matter. What was this covenant of Levi? What really is behind Levitical and priestly service? It is this, that these priests and Levites should be the angel of the Lord of hosts to the people of Israel. They should be the messenger of the Lord of hosts. They should be his spokesman, his ambassador, his representative. Now, with that, you've got to the heart of the matter. They were to be, really, in such a relationship to the Lord that they were the very expression in themselves of God himself on earth, of his life and of his peace and of his holiness. <coughs> Let me expand it. They were to be the very expression of the presence of God on earth. And they were to express his life and power they were to express his peace and love and mercy. They were to express his holiness and righteousness and faithfulness. They were to be the expression of his heart and his mind. The messenger or the angel of the Lord. The one who stands on earth in the place of God himself. The visible sign of an invisible God. Now this is an exalted calling. It's a tremendous calling. And uh, it, therefore, on the one hand, it is a tremendous privilege to be a Levite and a priest, and on the other hand, it is an awful responsibility. Now, they were and are a picture of, to us, of service. And um, we must remember that if we turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and, um, and verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, we read this. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ye also, to be a, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. 
Well, now then, uh, you see, we are priests, all of us. There are not a special class of priests. Uh, we believe scripturally and rightly in the priesthood of all believers. And every single born-again child of God is a priest. We are a holy priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. Look again at verse 9. Ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood. That's a very remarkable thing. It was the thing forbidden in the Old Testament. The king could not be the priest. And the priest could not be the king. But you and I have this inestimable privilege that we are kingly priests or priestly kings. We are a kingdom of priests. Very well, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And here we have it. And where well, we'll read the last part of verse 5. Unto him that loveth us and loosed us from our sins by his blood. And he made us to be a kingdom to be priests unto his God and Father. Well now you see, uh, therefore, um, all this that we are saying about the covenant of Levi has very great significance for us. For what do we mean by the service of God? Do we mean that some people go to a Bible college or into a theological seminary and are turned out as a special class of men called priests or pastors or ministers? Or do we really believe what the what the word of God teaches that we are all priests unto God and though there are some of us who have a particular function uh, and rightly so and there are this, this differences there, there are differences of function and position and authority amongst God's children yet we are all kings and we are all priests well in the light of that we have to ask ourselves another question. What is the character of true service then? It is, as we have said, to be in such a relationship to the Lord that we are to each other, as well as to the world, the very expression of the presence of the Lord. This is what it means in 1 Corinthians 11 about not discerning the body. When we cause division, when we gossip, when we backbite, when we're factious, when we harmfully abuse one another, somewhere, we are actually harming the presence of God in another believer. However much we can't see the presence of God, it is there. So you see, here's a serious thing. What is the character of true service? It is to be in such a relationship to the Lord. That's the point, to be in such a relationship. Not only positionally, we're all in that relationship, but in practice, that we are the very expression of his heart and mind. In other words, the heart of God beats through us, and the mind of God is expressed is, as it were, declared in us and through us, not only by word, but in action. This, however, 
can only be at the very great cost to ourselves. We have to be removed if God is to be expressed through us. And that is why there is so little service amongst God's people. There is an awful lot of meetings and an awful lot of the routine. And there's an awful lot of knowledge, although we may be even concerned about that today. But really, the point is there is very little real and true spiritual service. Why? Because knowledge about God does not mean that we can serve God. Zeal for the Lord doesn't mean that we can truly, uh, actually serve the Lord. You see, the thing that has to take place is that drastic operation whereby you and I are removed so that through us the Lord himself can be expressed. Yes, originally, each one of us has a rightful uh, original temperament and constitution and God will express himself through me in one way and you through another way. But there is something which in us naturally has got out of its rightful place and is in the wrong place, and it's that that has to be removed by a deep spiritual operation and a painful one. And that's what this little section in the book of Malachi is really all about. This character is produced by three things essential in the service of God. Let's look at them. First of all, the cross. The cross is the means by which God produces true service. There is only one thing that can remove you and I uh, from occupying the wrong place, and there's no good trying to find any other substitute. We'll spend our whole lives looking for it. There is no other substitute. There, there is only one thing that can remove us, and that is the work of Christ upon the cross. Not only the fact that he covered us, but he has removed us. Now let's just look at one or two scriptures at random. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 14. How much more from the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. There, that's a little commentary on Malachi. Without blemish to God. Purify. There's another commentary, a little comment on the book of Malachi. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, the dead works that there are amongst Christians and here. In this come the dead works. Because they're all being produced by our own flesh life and by our own Christianized self-life. That's all. And they're dead works. And there's only one thing that can get rid of them, it's the blood of Christ on the cross. The cross is the only way by which we can be purged or purified from these dead works. What? To serve the living. One day. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. 
verse 13. Of course, the whole of this chapter we really ought to read, but we're not going to. Chapter 6, you know how it speaks about our old self was crucified with him in verse 6 so that the sinful body might be destroyed, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the key to it. Now, verse 13. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves or servants, you are slaves or servants of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But, Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become servants or slaves of righteousness. I am speaking, for just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. There we are. It's the cross that lies at the root, the thing that God has already removed, as far as he's concerned. And we're living in a realm which he's vetoed. Then again, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, verse 1 and 2, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this word here is a very difficult one to, um, to translate. And we've often uh, followed Jay and Darby's little comment on it. Your spiritually intelligent worship. Your spiritually intelligent worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Now that is Malachi. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How can any man or woman, unless they know the cross, prove that the will of God is good and perfect and acceptable? They can't. And the key to it all is not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. But just wait, how does that happen? By presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, the thing's total. And this is the thing that frightens us. It is so total and final. Because everything has a sequence. If once we will only see that the cross is the means by which, in its fullness, not just our salvation from sin, but our deliverance from self, until we see the cross as that and are prepared for its devastation, prepared to come totally and finally to an end there, we cannot prove the transforming of our mind, the tran our transformation by the renewing of our minds, or the proving that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So here is the key, the first thing about service. Go right back to, to the covenant made with Levi, and you'll find it there. Those men had to take a sword to their own, some of them, to their only begotten sons. To those that had been the apple of their eye, and they had to slay them in cold blood. What a thing! 
This was the cost of their service. This was the cost. You see, you and I, let's be honest, we've all got a darling, and our darling is ourselves. And we pamper it, and we pet it, and we powder it, and we feed it, and we take it out for little walks, and we display it. Oh, how we love the little darling of ourselves. Sometimes it looks so humble. Sometimes it's so active. Sometimes it shrinks away. Sometimes it's there right out at the front. But we love ourselves. Sometimes we speak about loathing ourselves, but deeper than all that is the little darling that we cherish, and that is ourselves. And you see, the whole point is this, until you and I, and I say it to myself as well, until you and I can take the sword of God, the sword of the spirit, to ourselves and decapitate ourselves. There's no way into the service of God. We can't help it. Much as we want to serve the Lord, we get in the way. It's so simple. We just get in the way. Our own heads do God's thinking. Our own wills do God's willing. Our own emotions do God's loving. We just can't help it. We just get in the way. So here is the key, and it began there in Exodus, and there in Numbers, when those men took the sword to their own kith and kin. Great cost. Now there's a second thing, because the cross on its own can leave us so devastated that we'll never rise again. And this is where some people are. And they've got to the cross, and they've seen something of the wonder of the cross and the necessity of the cross, but there is something else if we're going to go into service. It is the spirit. And I do, don't believe for a moment that it is a, uh, enough understood how essential the spirit of God is to service. Well, let's look. John 4, verse 24. I'm only taking one or two scriptures, otherwise we'd be here all night. And we must study Malachi. John 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So simple. Must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, just before that, if you look in the context, you'll find there's another kind of worship. And this is the worship of, of the soul. And it's all to do with buildings and hills and special places and special pe people, special classes of people and all the rest of it, you see. But the Lord Jesus said, no, that time that belongs to the Old Testament era is coming to an end. Those that worship God now have got to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now let's look at another instance. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And you've got it in a nutshell. We are those who worship God in the spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is service. You see. Now again, Romans chapter 1. Verse 9, 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Now we'll have a little more in a moment when we talk about corruption, uh, when we understand just what all this means. But you see, here is the second thing about spiritual service. First, you and I have got to be removed. But we're betides if we stay there. We've got ourselves removed, and we're just in a vacuum. There's nothing more. We need the Spirit of God, who alone is able to express Christ in us and through us. Otherwise, all people see are crushed people. That's all. They see drab, grey, colourless people out of whom everything's been crushed and in whom nothing has come to take its place. That's not the Lord's idea at all. The Lord's idea is to remove what we are, uh, where we're in the wrong place, and by the Holy Spirit to bring the Lord into the right place. And then express the Lord through us so that we become a true human being. You must remember that as unsaved uh, creatures, we are not true human beings. Only when we come to the Lord Jesus and there's a right order in us that we become true human beings. And that's when God within is expressed in our spirit through our soul and body. Well, now that's another. But there is a third thing about service which is as important in many ways as both the cross and the spirit and is often forgotten. And it is devotion to the Lord. Go back again to Exodus and Numbers. Those men, they were a picture of men filled with the Spirit when they were able to put to death their own members. What a picture they are. What an awful picture in one way they are to us of those who almost unnaturally are able to take the sword to their own kith and kin. Here's a picture of the Spirit of God, both in Phineas and in the tribe of Levi. But now, devotion to the Lord. John 21, Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Here is service. And the Lord pointed out to Peter, who'd had such a terrible experience just a little while previously, that the root and basis of all service had got to be love for the Lord. Do you love... And Peter couldn't get up to it, for two words are used here. And in the end, the Lord had to come down to a lower level. But nevertheless, the point is that in feeding the lambs and the sheep and tending them, love to the Lord was the key to it all. If we love the Lord, we shall serve. And if we don't love the Lord and try to serve, our service has lost its character. It's lost its meaning. 
Look at um, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, through love, be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. This always happens. You bite someone and in the end you get consumed. So simple, I've seen it happen again and again. And uh, the key to real service is through love to serve one another. It's not always easy. But it's love for the Lord in the end which enables us to serve one another. And of course I'm not going to read it, but you've only got to turn to the classic chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and there you've got it. Service without love doesn't mean a thing. So here you've got three, three matters which are absolutely essential to true service. The cross, the spirit, and devotion to the Lord, or love for the Lord. This is the heart of the matter, and it is symbolized in Exodus chapter um, 32 and Numbers 25. There the word jealousy is used. They were jealous with the jealousy of God. And that word always means more than mere love. It means love of such an intensity that it is absolutely full of zeal so that it cannot bear anything else to compromise or come in. We see the more apparent character of service in Malachi, if you'll turn back to Malachi now, chapter 2. <clears throat> this is the heart of the matter, what we've been talking about. It goes right back to the covenant of Levi. Now, the more apparent character of service, Malachi 2, verse 6 and 7. Three things. Outwardly, God's word in the mouth. Oh dear, this finds us out when we've got our own words in our mouth. But true service is God's word in the mouth. Uh, for instance, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, part, first part, true instruction was in his mouth. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. That's the first thing. Outwardly, God's word in his mouth. Inwardly, verse 6 and the last part, or the middle part of the verse, a close walk with God. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. Now, that again is a key to service. Outwardly, God's word in the mouth. Inwardly, a close walk with the Lord. The two things are related. You try to put God's word in the mouth when there's no close walk with him. And the thing just does not ring true. And therefore, we have to speak about reality. Because there are so many people who all the time trying, if I may use an awful expression, to spout the word of God. And it just doesn't ring true and it puts everyone off and gets us into a lot of trouble. But if there's a close walk with the Lord, that means a true experience of the Lord, then God's word will be in the mouth. It follows. But there is another thing. The result. Outwardly God's word in the mouth. Inwardly a close walk with God. But what is the result? 
the last part of verse 6. Many converted and kept from evil, and he turned many from iniquity. There was the apparent, more apparent character of service. Inwardly, the heart of the matter, the cross, the spirit, and love for the Lord. So that we're in such a relationship to him, we are the very expression of his heart and mind. Outwardly, there is uh, God's word in our mouth. Inwardly, a close walk with the Lord and the result. Many are converted through our testimony and through our witness or kept from evil. Now then we have to ask ourselves a third question about this passage. Verses 1 to 9, we've asked ourselves, what is the covenant of Levi? We've asked ourselves, what is the character of true service? Now we have to ask ourselves, and this comes right to Malachi, how was it corrupt? We have called it corrupted service. How was it corrupt? <coughs> when it had lost its true character and was no more an expression of God, but of man, it had become corrupt. What does God call corrupted service? When you and I have taken the place of the Lord. And it when we dress up our own will with words of God. When we dress up our own minds with God's word. When we dress up our own opinions with God's word. We've taken the place of God. We can't help it. Because probably we have rejected the cross. And in so doing, we have rejected the only means by which we, you and I can be made safe as far as God is concerned and as far as his people are concerned. A safe person is a person who knows the cross. This is a corruption of the covenant of Levi. God's covenant was that they should be in such a relationship to himself that they were the expression of his presence on earth. The moment they took the place of the Lord, that was a corruption of the covenant. They had no business to do it. For they stood in a privileged and a responsible position. You see, the rest of the children of Israel were, could think as they wish and had their opinions, but the Levites and the priests were not allowed to because of this a special relationship to the Lord. Self came between God and the people. That's all. Here was God. There were the people. God wanted to get through the priests and the Levites to the people express himself. But when self came up, the people could only see the self. They could only see the priests and the Levites themselves. They could no longer see God. And... Uh, Therefore the Lord was hidden. And as always, that kind of service becomes professional. It becomes routine. It becomes a matter of duties to be performed and got through. It's no longer a joy. It's no longer a privilege. It's no longer a great responsibility. But somehow or other it's just a profession. Um, you know, put down your profession. Uh, a minister, see, or uh, or uh, a deaconess, or a, or a deacon, or or something else, or something. It's just become a profession. Not that these things are necessarily wrong, but it can be just professional. 
It can be just routine. Oh, we could say so much more about all this, but you see, this is the, what we mean by corrupted service. When service becomes professional, I give, I preach sermons because I'm paid, um, um, I'm paid to do so. Um, I'm, uh, you, don't what, you see what I mean? I think you'll have to get a kitchen chair and sit outside. I'm sorry. Um, uh, you know what I mean? You just have to, um, you've just got to realise it becomes professional, that's all. For something, you're paid to do it, and therefore you're paid, to, because you're paid to do it, you give a message. You sort of trot out some little word, because you've got to, because you get wages for doing it. And this can enter into every other kind of um, um, or side and aspect of the service of God. Um, I think we ought to understand this um, very clearly. They became as compromised as the people, if not more so, if they were bothered at all. It was over their own rights and interests rather than the Lord's. That's the thing that troubled them. So also, our service is corrupted when self comes in. And with it, personal gain. I'm in this business for personal gain. I'm in the service of the Lord for personal power. I'm in the service of the Lord for personal ambition. I'm in the service of the Lord for position or for authority or because it's a means of displaying myself. This is what the service of God can be prostituted into when self comes in and takes the place of the Lord. The cross ceases to function. The Holy Spirit ceases to anoint and empower and realize Christ within. And self-interest takes the place of divine love. <coughs> the power behind such service, when it is corrupt, is no longer Christ or the Spirit of God. Its resources are wholly natural within one's own natural powers and personality. So in the end, it all comes down to a question of your own personality, the amount you've got, the amount of power, the amount of resources naturally that are in you, and so on. And you know, and I have to say this, often God's service is abused in this way. And the church becomes a sphere where little men inflate themselves into big men. That has to be said. I travel around a little in Scandinavia and in Europe and a little in this country. And, um, you know, sometimes it's sad to see what can happen. People, they become little petty dictators, holding everything in their own hands. 
telling everyone what to do, ruling with a rod of iron. And, and it's the abuse of service. Those men couldn't get anywhere, even in the world. But the church is a little cosy sphere where they can come to personal power and uh, personal position, as it were, and ambitions behind it. Oh, it's an awful thing when the church becomes a platform for little men, when it should be the platform for a great God. There is no place in the church for big or little men. The only place in the church is reserved for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now, you see, this is what it means, of course, in, in the New Testament, where it speaks about those who lord it over the flock. You know, when the Apostle John speaks of a certain gentleman in one company who loveth to have the preeminence among them. In another place, we're told about not lording it over the flock, making it a place where we can be something, where we can, we can have people at our beck and call all the time. No. Now that may all seem a bit harsh and a bit severe, but we have to say it because it is just this that Malachi is putting his finger on. This is what had happened in the days of Malachi. The priests were there for what they could get out of it. The Levites had prostituted the service of God into something for personal gain. They couldn't be bothered about whether the sacrifices were blind or lame or diseased or mutilated. They didn't bother that the whole tithe wasn't being bought in as long as they got their share. That's all they bothered about. It was corrupted service. And I believe that this is why the Lord Jesus gave us his own example illustration, if you like, and his own example and, and, and illustration and um, estimate of service when he washed the feet of his disciples in John 13. This is the Lord Jesus' estimate When the greatest can wash the meanest's feet. When Jesus can wash Judas's feet. And Peter's feet. And all the others that were going to deny him. That is the Lord's estimate and example of service. Anything less, anything other is corrupt. You can be sure that self has come in when you cannot wash the saints' feet. So simple. It's a simple little test, but there it is. Well, there we are, corrupted service. Now what about compromised lives? Shall we just cover this? From in chapter 2, from verse 10 to verse 16. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves another question. What is it that God seeks after? 
in these lives. What is it really that the Lord seeks after? Well, there are two things we should especially note in this passage. First of all, verse 11. The sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. The sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. Chapter 2, verse 11. His concern is that there should be no possibility of idolatry or alien influences brought into his sanctuary. His great cry is, it, Judah has profaned the sanctuary and has married the daughter of a foreign god. You see? The Lord's concern over his sanctuary is that there should be no idolatry. He knew only too well what would happen with intermarriage. Idols, idols of the wife, would gradually be introduced into the household and therefore in the end of the sanctuary. Alien influences, because children nearly always are molded by their mothers. Children would grow up with a large amount of alien foreign influence. And this was the Lord's concern, because in the end it was going to touch his sanctuary. Spiritually, this speaks of the church built of living stones quarried out of Christ the rock. When you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, you read, coming unto Christ the living stone, and then a little on, ye also as living stones. We are quarried out of what Christ is. That's the first thing. The church is produced out of the life and nature of Christ. That's the first thing we've got to get clear. The second thing in this passage is in verse 15. Godly seed, or a godly offspring, which he desires. God's concern was for pure stock, children born of his people, not children born of a mixed marriage, but children born of his people. Anything else was the beginning of compromise and the loss of national distinctiveness. Now this is a thing that the prophets cry out again and again. They were so concerned about the national distinctiveness. And of course the Jew to this very day, to this, because he heeded in the end the ministry of the prophets, has remained nationally distinctive. You could tell a Jew anywhere anywhere because they're nationally distinctive whereas where are the vikings i mean the vikings that came to us they're mixed up aren't they amongst us all where where are the saxons where are the normans they've all got mixed up now you can't tell them some of us are slightly darker some of us are slightly lighter we say one is anglo-saxon or more saxon the other one's more norman but they're all we're all mixed up but the jews have retained their national distinctiveness because they refuse to intermarry and the Lord's whole concern was the loss of national distinctiveness that comes with intermarriage. Now, spiritually, this speaks of the Lord's desire for fruit and for issue, which is wholly begotten of himself in us. Not only others who come to the Lord that are born really of God, but I'm thinking of fruit and issue, our fruitfulness before the Lord, that it may be of God. God is jealous over the purity of his own life in which everything rests. 
Both the church and fruitfulness are produced by his life. Um, I, I will only just say this as an aside, but you know the little term in the in the New Testament, especially used in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, the testimony of Jesus sums up this. What was the testimony of Jesus? His testimony was this. He was the embodiment of another kind of life. Another kind of, the life of God. He called it eternal life. And when it, the, the Gospel of John, which is the Gospel of the testimony of Jesus, speaks again and again of Christ as the life. You see, this is the kind of life it is. This is what it can do. See, because it's unadulterated. It's uncompromised. And now in the book of Revelation we are told that we hold the testimony of Jesus. In other words, we've got this life. And insofar as we hold it, we hold it. Don't allow it to become adulterated or compromised, you see. We also are following, as it were, in the ministry of Christ in this matter. Well, here it is, because... Um, Really, it's a testimony to the fact that I've got a different life inside of me, and when the world watches, it sees something which it cannot explain, or should not be able to explain. And that's why the Lord allows us some to go through very deep trials and, and, and difficulties, to show the world, as well as the unseen world, that we've got another kind of life. We've got the testimony of Jesus, actually. A life which, when all hell comes out against it, comes up on top in the end. It's another kind of life, you see. Death itself cannot do anything to it. It cannot overwhelm it. And this is the church. This is what the church really should be. It's that candlestick of pure gold, you see. It's the life of Christ, really. And it's produced out of the life of Christ. And we're living stones. Not dead stones. Not half-dead stones. But living stones. That is of Christ life, quarried out of what he is. Well now, secondly, question we must ask ourselves is in what does this compromise consist? Compromised lives. Well, now let's say very clearly. Verse 11. Verse 11. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. The marriage of believers and unbelievers. That's the compromise that Malachi puts his finger on. The marriage of believers and unbelievers. Or the world and the church united. The world and the church united. So that the distinctiveness of Christ is lost. And the church has become like a worldly club. Or like any other worldly institution or organization. Yes, it's got the name of Christ. It's got even the doctrines of Christ. It may even have to a certain amount the blessing of God. But it has lost its distinctiveness. Now it is perhaps necessary, I think, here, to say that the marriage of believer and unbeliever is forbidden in God's word. I don't know whether it's necessary to say that. But I think I ought to say it. For those of you who are younger in the Lord may not realize that, you be sure that you seek your, the partner, your partner, amongst God's children. Very rarely, if ever, does the marriage of believer and unbeliever work out 
very, very rarely indeed. So make absolutely sure that you're being equally yoked together in the Lord. I think that may be one thing we ought to say. And another thing I think I ought to say, although I hardly think it's necessary, as for this terrible mix-up in what are often called churches, where believers and unbelievers are yoked together in a common membership and activity, well, all I can say this evening is it is a parody of the truth. It is a parody of the truth. I remember once saying something like this, someone said to me afterwards, oh, but you're quite wrong. The Lord gave a parable about this and told us that the wheat and the tares must grow together. And uh, therefore, of course, you've got to have unbelievers in the church. And you must never judge. You must never try to discern. But if you look carefully at that parable, you'll find the world is not the church. The, world, uh, the field is not the church. The field is the world. And there, the child of God and the unsaved, as it were, are ripening together, side by side. You can't take the believer out of the world. can't separate them. Got to, they've all, we've got to be in the world, though we're not of it. But this is a different matter when we come to the church. God forbid that we should start to introduce unsaved people into membership. This kind, this is, this is the curse of membership. It is better to have a membership recorded in heaven, where God knows exactly who is who and what is what. But I say here, I won't say any more about this, but Malachi has got something to say about this. You see, you see, this is what has happened in the church. People have wanted numbers, and they've, so they've, they've got loose about the way that they've, uh, they've brought in people, and they haven't bothered, and gradually people have come in, especially children of, of, of originally Christian parents, you see. And, well, we've got questions. What's happened? Well, look. Just look what has happened got Christendom as, a, as, as the evidence. Well, I won't say any more about that. Nevertheless, I've got to say this. This matter of compromise with the world goes much deeper than just a question of believer marrying unbeliever or uh, this question of unsaved people uh, in what is called a church. Well, now, this is what we've just got to look at in the closing moments of our time this evening. I want to read uh, one or two parts of God's word to you. I think it will help you. It will be a commentary on this. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of the same loaf. Consider the practice of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
That's a commentary on compromised lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here are some strong words in the American Revised Standard Version. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. Do not be mismated with unbelievers. For what partnership hath righteousness and iniquity? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. And then 1 John, 1 John, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the, for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now we begin to see something of the nature of compromise with the world. But it is not simply a matter of things which constitute worldliness and this is where so often people part company it is not just a matter of things it may include things but it is not just a matter of things far far more important is it to realize that worldliness is a nature it is a man it is a kind of life now then listen to these Let's look to James. <coughs> James, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or partiality or insincerity. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire, you do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Now, here you have it. Ye adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? What is the friendship of the world here? What is it? What is it? Go back. It is these passions that are at war in your members. Go farther back. It is these, this jealousy and selfish ambition. Go farther back. It is this wisdom which, is, which does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. You have there a definition of wealthiness. Now then, turn then over to Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these <coughs> you all once walked when you lived in them, but now put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices. Put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is worldliness. There is worldliness. But go back to chapter uh, 2, verse 20. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things which all perish as they are used according to human precepts and doctrines? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, but they are of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. That gets, as far as I'm concerned, to the root of the whole matter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, you see, uh, this is the whole point. We can go on, there's other scriptures too, there's Galatians 5, 19 to 24, if you wanted to, another one, all these, 19 to 24, I think you know what it is, but it's again the same kind of thing. Now the works of the flesh are plain, immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing and the like, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now you see the whole point here as I see it is that when the cross by the Spirit does not cleave between what is old and what is new, what is just my old nature and what is Christ, then you have a marriage within of the world and Christ. That's all. 
when there is anger, when there is hate, when there is jealousy, when there are all these things that exist inside, there you've got the world and Christ married. There you've got something. This is the whole point. I am quite sure that compromise with the world of which we speak is not merely to do with outward things, though it must of necessity include them. If our life is hid with Christ, we've got to decide whether we can go to the pictures, whether we can drink, whether we can go to the theatre, whether we can dance, whether we can wear lipstick, whether we can do all these other things. We've got to decide by this law, can Christ look out of my eyes here? Can Christ go with me there? Can Christ enjoy this there? Can he in fact be happy with all this? Yes, of course. But if you and I should think that just those things are worldliness, and by getting rid of those things we've got rid of worldliness, oh, my dear brothers and sisters, we are heading for deception. I've seen people who think themselves to be so otherworldly, and yet the division and the backbiting and the jealousy and sometimes the immorality that exists or do any pub discredit. No. You and I have got to recognize that worldliness covers a very large sphere. And it includes all those outward things and it includes all these inward things. But woe betide us if we try ourselves to define worldliness as just something. No, there's got to be a cleavage. And to me, this is the heart of the matter. A cleavage by the Spirit of God between what is Christ in me and what is not Christ. What is the old nature and what is the new. What belongs to the old life and what belongs to the new life. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. You've got it, I believe, there. Oh, it's, it's a devastating work. It goes back again to this question of the cross. Chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's a very, very deep work indeed. And it's a work that is not apparent in a lot of our lives. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, here's another little word often overlooked. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, listen, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Isn't that a beautiful word? In your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. See what is Christ in you and reverence him. Fear him. Set him apart in your heart. Don't let there be an adulteration. Well, now, look, I must close, and we haven't got so far. I want to ask one last question concerning compromised lives. We have seen what this compromise <coughs> consists of. Of course, we have looked at it as a marriage of believer and unbeliever, which is wrong. We've seen that it's wrong to bring unbelievers into the church, into a common membership, but we've gone much deeper than that. We've seen that it is a whole realm, a whole realm, outwardly and inwardly, which the Holy Spirit has got to deal with if you and I are to be free from compromise. What does it result in? 
compromise, compromised lives. It results in three things. Verse 10 of Malachi, chapter 2. Verse 10, a profaned covenant. A profaned covenant. That sacred relationship to the Lord is violated. Oh, if only you and I would understand what worldliness does. Real worldliness, it violates that sacred relationship to the Lord. What does to profane mean? I've looked it up. These, this is what the Oxford Dictionary says, to treat with irreverence, to treat with disrespect, to violate, to pollute, to make secular, unholy, unsacred. When you and I profane the covenant of the law by our compromise, we make something essentially sacred, unsacred. We make something essentially holy, unholy. It is secularized by being mixed with the world. Another nature is dressed up to look like the new one and brought in to the, into our life. Another spirit is introduced other than the Holy Spirit. And the two seem to mingle. And the result is the covenanted life of God is violated and polluted. That's what a profaned covenant means. And then the second thing is a profane sanctuary. Verse 11. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant? Sorry, verse 11. A committed Judah has been faithless, an abomination be committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. A profane sanctuary. What does this mean? Compromised lives means that the, mean the purpose of the Lord is contradicted. And faulty material is produced for his house. How interesting it is that every time we have a revelation of the house of God, either in Ezekiel or in um, Revelation, there is an angel who stands by measuring everything with a golden rod. Why? Because of faulty material. That's why. Because you and I are capable of sending up faulty material. It's not pure gold. It's not of the right standard. It's not of the right quality. Why? But it's not that God judges me just because we're not able. He knows we're not able. But he's made provision for us. I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire. We can have it. But it's when we refuse to have it at a price. And we allow faulty material to be produced in our life. Wood, hay, stubble. With precious stone and gold and silver. And the things get mixed. You see? The new and the old. His life and our life. And it results in a polluted worldly church. That's all. The third thing that it results in is compromised lives. Verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another? Faithlessness to one another. If we are faithless to the Lord, 
we can soon be faithless to one another. There is no true estate. If we are faithless to the Lord, we can soon be faithless to one another. Thus, fellowship is abused. Fellowship which results from sharing a common life and all that wrecks true fellowship appears. Anger, jealousy, selfishness, backbiting, division, exploitation of one another gossip, and so on, and so on. To sum up, what is the result of compromised lives? The life of Christ is adulterated and compromised so that the result is something neither holy of God nor holy of man. Not heavenly nor earthly but an unholy mixture. That's what God means by compromised life. The loss of distinctiveness, the distinctiveness of Christ. Now here we have here the despising of the, na- of the Lord's name and the profaning of the Lord's covenant. Perhaps it may seem to us very searching, very severe, almost hard, but we must remember this, that there are seven words that lie behind all the Lord's rebuke, all his grief and all his anger over blemished offerings, corrupted service, compromised lives, stems from one statement that expresses his whole heart, I have loved you, saith the Lord. It is just because the Lord loves us so that he cannot accept offerings that are blessed, service which is corrupted, and lives which are compromised, because he loves us. That's why. He knows that if you continue, if you and I continue to offer blemished offerings, we shall destroy ourselves. If you and I continue to give corrupted service, we shall become of all people so unreal, empty shells, tinkling symbols. If you and I continue to have lives that are compromised, we shall be of all people the most miserable and unhappy and restless. And the Lord knows it. And so the anger and grief of his love is expressed in this in this great outburst, as it were, against these three things. Because we're despising his name and we are profaning his covenant. Oh, well, perhaps we've, we've ended on a heavy note. I would have liked to have got to the point of Christ's coming because there's the hope <coughs> of it all. But I think uh, it would have been too much probably anyway to have covered so much in one evening. But uh, you see, the Lord has got an answer. And uh, the answer is himself in the end. And 
He has a purifying and refining work which he, he will do if we will let him. Well, now then, shall we just bow in prayer? Oh, dear Lord Jesus, there is not one of us that is not found out by these words from Malachi. <coughs> Lord, we've all offered blemished offerings. We've given thee corrupted service. Our lives are in some measure compromised. Oh, beloved Lord, we do pray, give us grace. Give us grace to get back to thyself. Give us grace, Lord, we pray, to accept the verdict and the work of the cross. Give us grace, Lord, by faith to take the Holy Spirit for our life and power. And, oh, above all, Lord, baptize us afresh with thy love, we do pray, so that, Lord, we may be those who take what thou hast provided as we come into thy presence for all our life. Those, Lord, who know something of true service in the Spirit. And those, dear Lord, whose lives are unadulterated, purely thyself. Our life hid with Christ in God. Lord, grant it to every one of us. We ask it in thy name. Amen.